If you feel like you could have done a better job as a mom or a dad, join the club. I am pretty sure we all feel that way sometimes. I'll guarantee that you did a better job than Diane Downs. If you're like me, and when you watch an episode of Hoarders, it makes you feel a lot better about how clean your own house is, well, listening to this episode will make you feel like Parent of the Year. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator, Lori Morrison. I want us to investigate another story from the world of true crime, and then we'll see what spiritual and safety takeaways we find there. I believe we're all called, especially those of us who call ourselves Christians. We're called to be what I call a different kind of PI, not a private investigator, but a person of impact. And you can be that person for somebody. It is so much easier than you think. This is season four, episode 22. The book that I chose this week is Small Sacrifices by Anne Rule. We're also going to take a look at a mom who was wanted for the murder of her five-year-old son. Now, I know it is just so hard to imagine that a mom or a dad could ever do something so evil. But according to a 2016 article by Philip Resnick, a professor of psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, the United States has the highest rate of child murder among developed nations. And the most common perpetrator of child homicide is that child's parent. In fact, about 2.5% of all homicide arrests in the United States are for parents who have killed their kids. I know that it is very disturbing, but when we take the time to look into these cases, I believe we can learn something very valuable that can help us save potential victims. It's been far too long since we've done an Anne Rule book, and I think this one is probably one of the most disturbing cases that she covered. It's the story of a mother who seemed so emotionally disconnected from her children that when they got in the way of the life that she wanted, she decided they were expendable. If you're still trying to decide, like me, how you can possibly wrap your brain around the story of a mother who could plot the murder of her own children and then take it that one step further to actually carry out her plan, it's just mind-boggling. But that's what Diane Downs did. All because she thought it would make the man she was having an affair with want to marry her. It's been just over 40 years now since she learned that he was never going to marry her. She shot her three children for nothing. I was a teenager when this story broke. And I was just starting to get into my lifelong interest in reading true crime books. And Anne Rule was definitely one of my favorite authors. I wasn't a mother yet, but I still couldn't begin to understand why Diane did what she did. So let's look at what actually happened. It was a warm May night in Springfield, Oregon, and police received a call from a local hospital. They had gunshot wound victims, and they needed police's assistance immediately. A red car had just appeared at the emergency room entrance, and the driver was leaning on the horn. Employees, of course, rushed out to check on the commotion, and the woman stood outside her car and said, somebody just shot my kids. When the ER personnel peered inside the car, they saw a small girl with brown hair lying in the right rear seat, and she was immediately rushed into the ER. A tiny blonde boy was also in the back, and he was taken quickly inside as well. A third child, another girl, was on the front passenger seat floor. Each child had been shot in the chest. The heroic efforts of the hospital staff couldn't save that third child, 
whose name they would later learn was Cheryl. The brown-haired girl who had been carried out of the car first was in really bad shape. She wasn't even registering a pulse and was barely breathing in strained gasps. This was Christy, and the ER personnel couldn't fathom that they might lose another one of these children. They continued to work on her, and miraculously, she stabilized enough to be taken into surgery. Then there was the little boy. His name was Danny. He was so small and still gasping for breath. One of the bullets had slammed into his tiny body very near his spine. Once people were taking care of the children, it was time to check on the woman who had brought them in. She'd been shot too, in the lower arm. This was Diane Downs, and she kept insisting that there was a madman on the loose. She said she'd been driving her kids home after visiting a friend when suddenly a man jumped in front of her car and demanded that she give it to him. When she refused, he shot the children. Police wanted her to go with them to pinpoint where this shooting had occurred. Diane didn't know yet that Cheryl was dead, so believing that each of her children were fighting for their lives, she went ahead and left the hospital with deputies. On their way out, she asked if her car had any bullet holes in it. Now, is that something you would have been worried about? Once she was back at the hospital, Diane was told that Cheryl had died. Observers thought that she just had to be in shock because she seemed so very calm. She was told that Christy was in surgery and that Danny seemed to have escaped life-threatening injuries. Diane asked if that meant the bullet that hit Danny had missed his heart. Now I know grief and shock and all those things can do strange things to people and make them react in bizarre ways. In hindsight's 2020, we're looking at her reactions knowing what had happened. But Diane's demeanor was just all wrong, and it would be a point that everyone would argue about later on. Diane was very cooperative with the police, and she allowed them to search her car and the duplex where she had lived with the kids. A doctor set Diane's arm, which had been broken by the shot that had hit her. The children's father, Diane's ex-husband Steve, was told that his kids had all been shot, and he jumped on the first available flight to Oregon. Early that next morning, Less than 12 hours after the shooting, Diane called a former co-worker in Arizona. Diane was a mail carrier, and she called the post office where she'd worked in Arizona before she had moved to Oregon. The woman was shocked as Diane told her what had happened, and Diane said that she appreciated the sympathy, but what she really, really wanted, the person that she'd called to talk to, was a man named Lou. But Lou wasn't all that interested in talking to Diane. He had told all of their co-workers that he would not accept her calls, but the lady holding the phone told him that he really needed to take this one. Diane began by asking Lou how he was, if he was happy. He had to ask her why she had called before she mentioned what had happened to her children. She told him how much she loved him, and he responded that he had to get back to work. He'd hoped that he'd been finished with her, and now this. Another man was about to enter Diane's life one she wouldn't like nearly as well as she liked Lou. His name was Fred Hugie, and he was the DA who would prosecute whoever had committed this terrible crime. Investigator Doug Welch met with the kid's dad once he arrived, and he had the delicate task of asking if he thought Diane might ever put Lou above her kids. No way, was Steve Down's response. Because she had lost so much blood, Christy suffered a stroke on top of her already devastating wounds. It took away her ability to speak, 
but doctors hoped that that was just going to be temporary. Danny was paralyzed from the chest down, and no one knew if that was going to be temporary or permanent. Diane was doing well. Of course, she hadn't been injured nearly as severely as her children had been, a fact that investigators found very interesting. Her demeanor was bugging them too. One said she acted like her pet parakeet had died. They were even more bothered by the fact that her story of how the shooting happened just didn't make logical sense. They weren't the only ones doubting Diane's story. Her beloved Lou gave police and prosecutors a motive. He told them that he'd broken up with Diane for good, and he had told her he just didn't want to be a daddy. If Diane really had shot her kids to improve her chances of keeping Lou, then they weren't safe, even though they were still in the hospital. They certainly weren't going to be safe if they were ever released back to Diane's custody. So Fred Hughie asked a judge to sign an emergency protective order for Christy and Danny. The judge did, and the kids were placed in foster care. Hughie and his wife had decided not to have children of their own, and he wasn't totally sure he understood how protective he was feeling about Christy and Danny. He just couldn't bear the thought of not being able to convict Diane for the murder of Cheryl and the attempted murders of Christy and Danny. Lou, the man who didn't want to be a daddy, felt much the same way, so he agreed to record calls with Diane, hoping that she would tell him what she did and why. When they talked, she mostly just tried to convince him that he had not seen a gun in the trunk of her car the last time he saw her. She gave him nothing that would help the police build a case against her. Diane's ex-husband Steve made the trip from Arizona to Oregon to visit Christy and Danny as often as he could. Diane had always been able to manipulate him, and she managed to sneak in an unsupervised visit with the children while they were with Steve. Christy had been showing such emotional improvement since she'd been shot, but that visit with Diane robbed her of that. She still couldn't talk about what happened. But authorities stumbled across the perfect way for Christy to tell them what happened. Using life-size dolls that had been made to represent her, Cheryl, and Danny, Christy acted out what had happened the night that she and her siblings had been shot. Now that authorities felt confident in Christy's ability to say what happened in court, it was time to arrest Diane. Once her picture was back in the news, the public found out what the prosecutors had only recently been made aware of. Once again, Diane was pregnant. Prosecutors started to worry that no matter how good their evidence was, a jury would be reluctant to convict a hugely pregnant woman of anything, let alone murder, attempted murder, and assault on her own children. Fred Hughie questioned responding officers, forensic experts, and the doctors who treated the children in the emergency room to explain the evidence. But the most important witness he had, of course, was Christy Downs. Would a nine-year-old have the strength to tell the truth when it was so, so very frightening? Had she even recovered enough from her devastating stroke to be able to communicate what she knew about what happened that night? Christy struggled to answer Fred's questions through her tears. But when he asked her the all-important question, who shot you, Christy answered, my mom. He asked her if she still loved her mom, and Christy admitted that she did. Then it was the defense attorney's turn to cross-examine Christy. Can you imagine how hard that would be? You have to show the jury that she's either confused or that she's been coached to save your client. But if you're too tough on a terribly wounded nine-year-old girl, the jury's going to despise you and take it out on your client. 
When Lou testified, Diane tried to maintain as much of a poker face as she could. She only faltered when he testified that being free of her was a relief. Her attorney tried to make it seem like Diane was also a victim. She said that her father had abused her. She described her difficult marriage and insisted that although she'd made mistakes as a mother, she certainly hadn't shot her children. When it was Fred Hughie's turn to examine her, she admitted nothing. But the jury did get to see her terrible temper when she seethed at having her story even questioned. The defense had no big bombshells. Their only hope was to cast as much doubt as they possibly could and hope for one juror that just couldn't believe a mother would do what Diane was accused of. It didn't work. Diane was found guilty on two counts of attempted murder, two counts of first-degree assault, and one count of murder. She was sentenced to life plus 50 years, with more time tacked on after she actually escaped early in her sentence. Today, Diane remains in prison at the age of 67. She's been denied parole multiple times. And what about Danny and Christy? Well, Fred Hughie and his wife adopted them. The daughter that Diane gave birth to shortly after her trial has spoken about what it was like to find out who her biological mother was. And you can check out the show notes for a link to an interview that she gave to 2020. None of us wants to think about a mother hurting their children, but it happens more often than we want to believe. We think that certain people can always be trusted, like moms, police officers, teachers, coaches, pastors. That's one big reason that I'm getting ready to release my latest book, In God We Trust, Everyone Else Gets a Background Check. It's a very practical look at why we trust too easily, who we trust too easily, and how we can learn to trust properly. Now we're going to take a look at another mom who police say murdered her own child, and they need our help finding this woman. It's going to take all of us working together to get justice for Cairo Jordan. Police need our help to find the woman suspected of murdering her own son. The body of a little boy was found on April 16th in 2022, northwest of Louisville in Washington County, Indiana. He was discovered in a suitcase on an isolated dead-end road. It took six months for the authorities to be able to identify the boy as five-year-old Cairo Amar Jordan. Police say that his mother, 37-year-old Dewan Ludi Anderson of Atlanta, and another woman, 40-year-old Dawn Elaine Coleman of Shreveport, Louisiana, are responsible for little Cairo's death. Dawn Coleman was arrested back in October, but Dewan Anderson is still on the run. Police think that it's possible that she's out west, maybe in L.A., maybe in Las Vegas. During the six months after Cairo's death, investigators said she'd been in San Francisco, San Diego, and Houston, among other places. Authorities say they have fingerprints belonging to Coleman and Anderson on contents that were found in the suitcase. Phones owned by the women were found to have been in the area where Cairo's body was found. And data from Riverlink, which is a license plate reader used on a toll bridge, found a car owned by Anderson had crossed that bridge between Louisville and southern Indiana the day Cairo's body was found. He was buried before authorities were able to identify him. So his headstone said, in loving memory of a beloved little boy known but to God. His full name is now engraved on a space that they left open for that purpose. 
in a twist that sounds very much like the recent Lori Vallow Daybell case. Dewani Anderson had been arrested before Cairo's death for child endangerment. Police say she posted multiple times on social media that demons were using her children as avatars. And she said that Cairo was a demon in a child's body. Just days before Cairo's body was found, Anderson allegedly tweeted, quote, I have survived the death attacks from my five-year-old throughout the five years he has been alive. I have been able to weaken his powers through our blood. I have his real name, and he is 100 years old. Need assistance. End quote. She had posted a lot of other disturbing things on social media in the months before she supposedly killed Cairo. She talked of exorcism and rituals she needed to perform in order to heal herself. Anderson is about 5 feet 5 inches tall and is believed to weigh around 130 pounds. She had short dark brown hair, but she's known to often wear wigs or hair extensions. If you have seen Dewan Ludi Anderson or have any information about her location, please contact your local police department and tell them what you know. They can pass that on to the appropriate authorities. You can also be a different kind of PI. Not a private investigator like me, but a person of impact when you share this episode. Someone in your circle may know something that they aren't even aware could help this case. This woman put plenty of information out there that she was a danger to her children, especially to Cairo. Social media is an amazing tool that can help us identify people at risk if we'll take these posts seriously and alert the authorities. I know it's easy to think that someone is just blowing off steam or that they wouldn't really follow through on what seems like threats. But I want you to repeat something after me. When someone tells you who they are, believe them. I hope you actually said that out loud so that you'll remember it. So I'm going to say it again. When someone tells you who they are, believe them. Red flags in things that people say or do are not exceptions to their character. They are expressions of their character. You might remember the story from the Old Testament where the people of Israel asked the prophet Samuel to find them a king. Things hadn't really gone so well in the era of the judges, so they thought that having a king like other nations would be just a stunningly good idea. So, guided by God, Samuel gave the people a tall, handsome man named Saul to be their king. Unfortunately, even though Saul really looked the part of a great leader, he had some major character flaws. He disobeyed, God. he disobeyed God's commands, and so God said that the people must have a new king, a humble and obedient king. God tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem to find a man named Jesse. And when Samuel saw Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, he assumed that this was the man destined to be Israel's new king. But let's read God's response in 1 Samuel 16, 7 from the Living Bible. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by a man's face or height, for this is not the one. I don't make decisions the way you do. Men judge by outward appearance, but I look at a man's thoughts and intentions. Predators of all kinds try so hard to take on the appearance of someone who is trustworthy and full of good works. They want to impress us. We have to remember that we don't know what a person is really like from the way they look or how awesome they seem on social media. We need to learn to assess a person's trustworthiness by looking as God does, by looking at what's on the inside. 
Of course, we can't really know a person's thoughts and intentions the way that God does. But all of us let who we really are leak out in the things we say and do. You can know what's on my heart by watching very closely what I say and what I do. Little inconsistencies shouldn't be seen as fluke things, but as my true nature leaking out. Does it drive you as crazy as it drives me when there's a high-profile criminal who's caught and the media starts interviewing neighbors and people that knew this person? And they'll say, well, he seems so nice and there weren't any red flags. But then they'll go ahead and say, what? And they'll describe things that they explained away because they didn't want to think the worst. Those red flags are the true nature of someone leaking out. This is so important that I'm going to say it yet again. Red flags in things people say or do are not exceptions to their character. They are expressions of their character. When someone shows you and tells you who they are, believe them. And if they're a caregiver for someone, please alert the authorities and have them do a welfare check on the person you're worried about. We have to look out for vulnerable people that God has placed in our community. If you liked this episode, I've put a link in the show notes to another one that is similar that I think that you'll really get a lot of great information out of. And please help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact, by sharing this episode. It's also so helpful if you subscribe to the podcast and if you'll go on Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star rating and a nice review. I would so appreciate that. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.